Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryant, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. With verdicts of guilty rendered against the three defendants, we continue our complete coverage of the trial from gavel to gavel. However, on this special episode, we bring you an interview that we believe offers unique insight into these events. Dr. Rashad Ritchie is a radio talk show host, political activist, community and business leader, and mentor. His three-hour morning talk show, Real Talk with Rashad Ritchie, reaches more than 3 million listeners daily and is based out of Atlanta on WAOK. As one of Georgia's leading voices on race and civil rights, and as one of the first members of the media to interview Ahmaud Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, Dr. Ritchie offers a unique perspective on the tragic murder of Mr. Arbery and on the reverberations of the trial of the men who pursued and killed him. We will be back with my conversation with Dr. Rashad Ritchie right after the break. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Dr. Rashad Ritchie, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Would you please tell us a bit about your background, your work, and how you became aware of the story of Ahmad Arbery's killing. Absolutely. So I'm a talk radio personality in Atlanta. I have a morning show here, Monday through Friday. I'm also the political analyst for CBS News Atlanta. Social issues, political issues, policy-related items, my teams for both platforms, we're at the nexus of this, especially as it relates to Georgia-specific politics and, and social events. We received an email that had a local article from Brunswick, Georgia, about a young black male who was killed by a white male in a majority white community. Now, at this time, law enforcement said that this was a burglary and the guy was a burglary suspect. And then it came out when the family questioned that narrative that he was, in fact, not committing any act of burglary, that he was trying to get away because he was a jogger and he wasn't committing any criminal act in that community. The family, especially the mother, just did not believe the narrative that was first put out there. So she wanted to make the story bigger. They did a gathering at her home, or I think at, at the home of, of a neighbor maybe, but it was a gathering of close family members. And I eventually interviewed the mother on my radio show. Well, at this time, the story is very local. It's a hyper-local story. And it's not getting any attention beyond Brunswick, Georgia, and that market footprint. So we highlighted it on my show, on my radio show. 
And it was at that time a still developing story. And then when it became clear that there was something more to this story, that's when you saw other individuals in media, as well as opinion media, they started to talk about it. Uh, and then naturally, we saw then the emergence of the video, which got everybody's attention in the world. And that video told the rest of the story and it put the pieces together that we couldn't see. What was your involvement with Ahmaud Arbery's family and his mom specifically, who seems to have been making a lot of the decisions on behalf of the family? You know, there's a guy who's really like my reporter for my radio show. His name is Brother Ali, okay? Brother Ali is an older Black gentleman. He's not a trained journalist. But what he does is he goes to cities and he's such an authentic individual that he's able to connect with families on a personal level and is all very genuine. He's able to connect with activists at a very personal level, all very genuine. I have worked with Brother Ali for about seven years. And when there's an issue in the country, he will travel to that issue and give me a direct report back. And we will at times put him on the radio, but most of the time we're literally having him help us connect with key individuals who are part of the community, who are part of the scenario that we're investigating, that we're reporting on. And so Brother Ali was in Brunswick, Georgia, and he was able to make connection immediately with the family, the mother in particular, as well as one of the aunts of Ahmad Aubrey. And we highlighted them on my platform, on my radio show. We wrote some articles around it. And then he was also able to get, and this was really unique, he was able to get the political opponent, his name escapes me at the moment, white male, the political opponent of Jackie Johnson. Jackie Johnson was the district attorney who has now been indicted for covering up the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. Well, at that time, nobody was talking about indicting her. We were saying she needs to be indicted from the station, from the radio show, but nobody was really talking about it as far as investigative prowess. The GBI had their eyes fixated, obviously, on the McMichaels and Roddy, but she was still a focal part of the case because it was clear what she did was criminal, in my opinion, and unethical. She was still running for re-election. Like this woman was up for re-election and the way they do elections for district attorneys in Brunswick, Georgia, they are over an entire circuit of counties, not just one county. So they are literally in charge of multiple counties when they get elected. So she's running for re-election. She has a political opponent. She's a Republican. This guy qualified as an independent. It's notoriously difficult for independents to get elected. Well, Brother Ali, my de facto reporter, I call I call his reports the cornbread and collard green report. And the reason I say that, I say that with great intentionality. I say it that way because for the South, when you talk about what's common, those things are common, especially in the black community. We, we sit down, we eat good food, we eat Southern cuisine. So I call it my collard green and cornbread report because it gets to the heart of the matter. He was able to secure an interview with the political opponent of the now indicted Jackie Johnson. And that political opponent used to actually work for D.A. Johnson. And D.A. Johnson was the favorite to win up until the murder of Ahmaud Arbery was exposed and she was at the center of covering it up. So now all of a sudden, the guy who used to work for Jackie Johnson as a prosecutor, who qualified as an independent, 
who probably did not believe they could actually win a decisive victory did. And so that was the other movement that happened out of the Ahmaud Arbery murder that many people don't talk about. She didn't lose her job because she got indicted. She lost her job and then got indicted. And there is a narrative that says if she would not have lost her job, she may not have been indicted. What, if any, knowledge or awareness did you have of the lead prosecutor in this case, Linda Dunikowski, before this trial started? Not much, but I did make my phone calls. And everyone that I called, I, I know judges, I know prosecutors, I know people that have worked with her in, in the office of the prosecutor. Everybody told me that this prosecutor was a true believer in justice. That was the universal sentiment about her. And you got to understand the mindset of many of us in my community. We have been so disillusioned by individuals that present one way but perform another that many times we will be cautious about our belief in their ability to deliver. And her reputation was solid. And she also handles the appeal. So the way they set this up by, by making sure she was the prosecutor, she's also the person in charge of appeals for her office which is a whole different legal skill set. So naturally, they already knew that if they can secure a conviction, the defense counsel was going to immediately start filing in appellate court. And she was the person who's in charge of appeals claims, which means she doesn't have to brief somebody else on the case in order to defend an appeals motion. She's the person who was involved in the prosecution originally. What was your assessment of Prosecutor Dunikowski's efforts to seat more than just the one black juror on the panel? Yeah, she wanted it to be diverse. You know, Brunswick and that surrounding area, you know, it's it's roughly 30 percent African-American. So naturally, the jury did not reflect the organic diversity associated with that local area. So she wanted to have that diversity. And it's not just diversity of skin color, brother. It's really diversity of thought. And thought is created by three E's, experiences, exposures, and environments. Those three E's are greatly impacted by how you're perceived in the general society. And your race is a great catalyst for that perception. So it's not just skin color. So I want to make it clear. It's more than skin color, but it's connected to skin color. So I understood what she was attempting to do. But what was egregious was that defense counsel decided to strike 11 of the 12 remaining black qualified jury members. That was the act that was egregious to me because he sent a very clear signal. He wanted to have a jury absent of diversity and contrary to the organic demographics of the local community. Once that jury was seated, what did you make of Prosecutor Dunikowski's strategy for trying the case with the jury that she had? And I want to break that down into two questions. I'll ask the first one. With respect to evidence of racial animus on the part of the defendants, Prosecutor Dunikowski made some efforts to get that stuff included, but in my view, didn't push very hard to make racial animus at the center of this case. What did you make of that strategic decision by her? I thought it was a smart judicial move. First of all, it is a smart move because she got the conviction she was looking for, basically. 
she virtually got all of the convictions with a very small exception. So it was the right strategy. She may have had a different strategy for a different jury. She may not admit that, but attorneys do create strategy based on jury or sometimes they shift their strategy in midstream based on how juries are responding to the presentation of the facts. Remember, juries are fact finders at the end of the day. So these fact finders, they give you certain tales as to how they are absorbing the information being presented. But I think it was a wise strategy to elevate the presentation to make sure that everybody can see themselves in it. And and here's, and, and I know this is not politically correct, but it's true. Here's the reality. Nobody cares about what they cannot see themselves in. It's marketing 101. If you can't see yourself in the marketing campaign, you don't care much about what's being marketed. You need to be able to see yourself in it. When you take a picture or somebody takes a picture of you and it's a group photo, and it's a great group photo, like everybody's looking great, everybody's looking fly, everybody's smiling great, but you're off a little bit. You got 10 people in the photo, but you're off a little bit. Well, nine of the people can look great if you're off, it's a bad photo because you don't like your presentation inside of that photo. So you had, in my opinion, this is just speculation, you had so many white members of the jury that you don't want to offend them with a very hardcore racial presentation, but you want them to see the crime above it all. And that's how we can see ourselves in all of that. We can see ourselves jogging in the community and being chased and shot. Yeah, that can happen to anybody. If, if we're saying this is legal to do, that can happen to you. You can be in a neighborhood and they just assume you don't supposed to be there. You're jogging. They get in a truck. They start chasing you down. You're terrified and you get shot. You don't need to make the racial argument. I think the racial argument is real. I'm just saying in the judicial sense, you don't have to make the racial argument in order to get the conviction from the jury. And I believe that was the thought process of the prosecutor. Is the racial argument still relevant? Of course it is. Ahmaud Arbery was killed because he was black. You don't get away from that. But there's a way of presenting the evidence to where you can allow people to connect dots. And I think that's what she did. And then the second part of that question is that in presenting Ahmaud Arbery as a person to this jury, while she did emphasize the worn tread on his sneakers and spoke of him as jogging into the neighborhood, running into the neighborhood rather than out of the neighborhood when he was leaving the under construction house on February 23rd, 2020, she also did acknowledge that Ahmaud Arbery was in a place where he was probably not supposed to be. She obviously qualified that by saying there were no no trespass signs. Nobody ever told him to get out of there. But she, in my view, didn't sugarcoat Ahmad Arbery's presence on that property without permission. And she didn't dwell on the jogging aspect of the story. What did you make of that in terms of her strategy in dealing with this jury? That was building trust equity with members of the jury. Juries are very smart. You know, people who sit for these jurors, they're very observant, they're very smart, they're very thoughtful, and they're very careful, typically, typically, with their uh, analysis of the evidence and the presentation. I think if she were to create a narrative that's 100% contrary to what the jury can find, then you lose trust equity with the jury. 
But if you paint the real picture, here's the real picture. There's no human being that's all good or all bad. That's the real truth. The better you can paint the real picture, because the defense, they didn't paint that picture. They painted a picture of three good white men who were the victims of Ahmaud Arbery. Well, that narrative doesn't fly anywhere with people that actually have the capacity to understand the evidence presented. She didn't make that mistake. She did not make the mistake of saying, well, this didn't happen as they said that, but that, that's not the case. The, the issue of him being on an open property, we can argue the legalese of that. You know, based on Georgia statute, that is not the crime of burglary. Based on Georgia statute, uh, a citizen's arrest could only be made if you actually witnessed a felony and you made the arrest within the approximate time of the direct observance of the incident. You can argue those legalese. And Georgia changed that law after this case, by the way. You can argue those legalese, but, but this is a jury. Why get caught up in the weeds on that? The bottom line is there was absolutely no physical threat to anybody. You cannot claim to be the aggressor. You cannot claim to be uh, the person who needs to defend themselves when you are, in fact, the aggressor. You bring a gun to a fight and you are the aggressor in that fight and you kill somebody who could not really defend themselves adequately. That is not a self-defense claim. That is outside of the realm of what we know as Castle Doctrine in the state of Georgia. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. What did you make of the defense strategy? And let's break that down by each of the defense teams, starting with William Roddy Bryan's defense counsel, Kevin Goff. Clearly, Kevin Goff was appealing to a good old boy constituency in his public statements. What did you make of the effectiveness of that? Or what did you make of what Kevin Goff's agenda was there? I think his agenda from day one was to get an appeal. I think he believed that he would lose the case, but that he would make a spectacle of the court so that he set himself up for an appeal. Now, let me tell you where I get that from. And actually, the judge even mentioned that and provided some sentiment to what I just said. The judge, when defense counsel continued to say that we need to remove black preachers and all of this jazz, the judge said, I've already ruled on that objection. And now I think that you're making these objections for another reason. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what the judge said. And then the judge did not go any further, but we understood what he meant by that. Now, here's what I think really went down. You remember when defense counsel stood up and he said that he didn't want all these black pastors coming in the courtroom. Now, maybe if you got one, that's fine. If it's Reverend Sharpton, that's fine. But I heard that Jesse Jackson was here. And by, the, by that time, Jesse Jackson had never been there. Reverend Jackson had never been to that uh, trial. So he drops Jesse Jackson's name. I think he wanted the preachers to respond. I think he wanted black preachers to come there because I think he wanted it to become an issue that he can bring up in appeal. And every time, and then remember, he objected again after they came there in mass 
He then raises another objection, which is the same objection he raised before. And that's when the judge said, I've already ruled on this. Well, here's why that part is important. When you object, you preserve the objection for the record, which means whatever you objected to can be used legally in a defense or in a plea for an appeal, in a motion for an appeal. So every time you saw him object and everybody brushes off like, oh, this guy's racist. He's crazy. What is he doing? He's showing his true colors. That's a legal strategy because you cannot file an appeal if you neglected to properly preserve the objection. And that's what I believe his strategy was. Moving on to Travis McMichael's defense counsel, Bob Rubin and Jason Sheffield. In Bob Rubin's opening statement, he called to mind a lot of images that some people found were tropes of black men threatening white women, particularly when he was describing Larry English's under construction property and presented the prospect of Ahmaud Arbery coming upon Larry English's wife or daughter. What did you make of Travis McMichael's defense team's strategy in presenting their client and Mr. Arbery to this jury? They believe this jury was made up of dumb white people, dumb racist white people. That's what they believe. They had an assumption that these variables in their presentation would somehow manipulate the understanding of criminality in the state of Georgia. Thankfully, it didn't work. And thankfully, they were wrong about the jury. But that kind of defense is tailor-made for dumb, racist, white bigots. Tailor-made. And the fact that they came up with that defense says either, A, to me, they believe that jury was made up of dumb, racist, white people, or they are dumb, racist, white people as defense counsel. And what did you make of their decision to put Travis McMichael on the stand? <laughs> you know, that's a Hail Mary decision. I was actually really surprised they put him on the stand because there was nothing sympathetic about the testimony. Uh, there was no natural emotion about the gravity of taking somebody's life who should be alive. I think in hindsight, they would agree it was a mistake because in many ways, I believe that part helps secure the conviction of these men. And anytime you are sitting as your own character witness, it opens yourself up to character cross-examination. These individuals, or, or uh, Travis in particular, they're not clean enough, or he's not clean enough, so to speak. He's not pure enough uh, to withstand cross-examination on character items or even of what happened that day. I think it gave the jury more than enough information I think it did exactly opposite of what defense wanted it to do. I think the prosecution did exactly what they were supposed to do when somebody that problematic decides to take the stand in their own trial. Were you surprised that the defense counsel generally and Travis McMichael's lawyers specifically did not try to litigate the citizen's arrest law before the trial started in motions? In other words, they're being blindsided by the judge's instruction that a citizen's right to execute a warrantless arrest is extinguished after the incident ends. Were you surprised that they did not try to get clarity on that before the trial started? 
I'm not really surprised, but I also would not have been surprised if they tried, right? Uh, I think the law is, or was, because the law has changed, I think the law was clear. I think it provided opportunity at the observance of a felony, and the arrest has to be in proximity of the observance of the felony. None of that happened. So I don't think you win on some pretrial motion to argue it as an affirmative defense. But it may have been a calculation for them not to do this. I don't know exactly what that calculation was. I, you know, when, when you don't have much to work with, you work with everything that's in front of you. And this was one of the things that they decided not to really go down. But it is probably because it would have been such an extreme argument that they felt it may not have been a good, a good use of their resources and time. I want to ask one more question about the lawyers. So Franklin Hogue and Laura Hogue, for the most part, they were relatively muted in their invocation of racial tropes. And then in her closing argument, Laura Hogue spoke of Ahmaud Arbery's long, dirty toenails. What did you make of that? Why do you think she did that? And do you think that she couldn't foresee the reaction to that? Or do you think it was calculated? I think it was very calculated, number one. I actually talked about this in detail on my radio show. So let me tell you the way I see this. I think at the end of that trial, they knew they were losing. I believe that wholeheartedly. I think at the end of the trial, they realized they're, they're not winning. A defense lawyer, at a certain point, if they're losing a case, they start to make their presentation to a jury of one, not a jury of 12. Because all they need is one holdout for a mistrial. And that one holdout is who I think, or the potential of that one holdout is who I think she was addressing, okay? Now, here's the other side of that. And this is what I said on my show. Cause we were all, we felt that in the gut when that happened, we felt that in the gut. It made me so angry, it, made, it pissed me off that anyone would describe a victim that way, period. Really pissed me off. And I remember going to sleep that night, thinking about how I'm going to attack this on my radio show the next day. And I said, you know, when I thought about it, I said, you know, as pissed off as I am about the characterization of a dead person, maybe other members of the jury didn't like it also. And maybe they feel a little bit like I feel about that characterization. And maybe that entire statement has actually sealed the deal to convict these killers. That was my take on it. Fascinating. I think you're right. I think they did make a calculation there, but I think it backfired tremendously. Where does Georgia and Southeastern Georgia specifically go from here? What do you think the ramifications will be for the prosecutors down in that Brunswick, Glynn County area? What do you think the impact will be on the state of Georgia? And how do Ahmad Arbery's family members move on from this tragedy? You know, the family of Ahmad Arbery, they're strong. They have become heroes in this movement through all of the emotionalism, all of the tears, the hurt, the pain. They went to trial every day, went to those court hearings every day. They were there and they are continuing to be active in the community. Ahmad Arbery's aunt, okay, his aunt, she was instrumental in the victory of D.A. Jackie Johnson's opponent. I mean, she coordinated people. She, she rounded people up. And she did it in a way where she admitted 
the guy who was running against D.A. Jackie Johnson, who covered up the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, he wasn't 100 percent aligned with the progressive movement or the movement for black lives 100 percent. He wasn't that guy. He's not an activist. He's not a Black Lives Matter guy, but he's so much better than Jackie Johnson. And she effectively made that case and was instrumental in making sure she, Jackie Johnson, could no longer be employed as a district attorney. But here's what else it did. It showed, in particular, the younger activist community that they have power over local policies through these local elected leaders. It's one thing to vote during the presidential cycle. It's another thing to realize the power that you have over non-presidential cycles and how local politics plays into the overall policy dynamic of your community. So I think that is something that has been taken away, a positive that has been taken away from this. And I also believe that there's more of a connection now between younger generations who are looking at policies and looking at prosecutorial misconduct and looking at decisions of leaders, in particular in law enforcement, and scratching their head saying, how the hell did that happen? Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Well, you're right, because you have a person in office who doesn't make sense. That's why that happened, okay? We had another movement in Fulton County, Atlanta, where longtime district attorney ran for re-election. He was beat by a woman named Fonnie Willis. You had a sheriff, longtime sheriff in Fulton County, was beat. It's hard to beat a sheriff, was beat in his re-election by a guy named Labatt, who was a very progressive law enforcement individual. Why? Because young people came out and voted and they connected with some of the consistent voters and said, here's what we agree. So I think those things are happening under the radar in local politics in Georgia. Dr. Rashad Ritchie, thank you so much for giving us your time today. And we'll look forward to having you back on jury duty in the future. It's been a pleasure, brother. Thank you for this show and thank you for all you do. Appreciate it. You take care. You too. That concludes this special episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. On our next episode, we will resume our examination of the state of Georgia's case against the defendants in their trial for the murder of Mr. Arbery. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. <laughs>